Hello, and welcome to Politico De Facto, a podcast following conversations between three friends on recent events, issues, and other topics surrounding foreign affairs. We are your hosts, Denna Anugra, Kim Little and Choi Hichan. We are three students on our final year of an undergraduate international relations degree. Every other week, you'll get to hear us present a news article and discuss its implications on the world of IR. We are not experts, but we are highly interested individuals, each with our own set of beliefs, as you will soon find out. If you have any questions, suggestions, or if you'd just like to say hi, you can tweet at us at PoliticoDeFacto on Twitter. With that out of the way, let's get started. All right, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of uh, Politico De Facto. My name is Daniel. With me is uh, Kim and Choi. What do you say? Hi. Oh, uh, hey, y'all. Uh, yeah, like Daniel introduced previously, my name is Choi Hee Chan, and as you can tell from my name, I'm Korean. But I can guarantee you that I'm not your typical Korean. Well, first. I spent most of my life in overseas, so I have a lot of uh, mixed background, and I have seen the various cultures and the various lifestyles from many perspectives, Singapore, Indonesia, and Korea, to name the list. So yeah, I'm very happy to share my opinions from the very first episode of the Political De Facto uh, podcast episode. So yeah, Kim, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, hey everyone. My name is Kim. But unlike what you think, I am not Korean, I am not born in Korea, and I am never really genetically inclined with Korean people. But somehow people think that I am. Anyway, I am a very enthusiastic IR student. I am in currently my last semester in university. And just like everyone in this room, I am very interested to discuss anything related to IR. I hope that our discussion here can give you values if you are a person who are enthusiastically uh, interesting in I- everything regarding to IR. Anyway, that's all for me. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, my name is Daniel. I'm sort of the uh, impromptu host for most of these episodes. Uh, I am the person uh, behind the computer. I'm in charge of editing and putting these episodes together. Uh, I am an IR student. Uh, I go to the same university with uh, Kim and Choi, which is Pelita Harapan University in Jakarta. Um, studied uh, IR for four years now. Uh, my interests kind of lie everywhere, but if I had to pick, they would lie somewhere along the lines of studying how uh, the indigenous cultures of different places come to influence their political spheres, as well as uh, I have a big interest for uh, military and defense-related issues, particularly that of uh, China and the United States. Uh, Also, we're all uh, currently in our final year, working on our final uh, assignments, our dissertations. Uh, Kim, what's your dissertation on again? Uh, yes, my dissertation is actually quite related to this topic that we're discussing. Well, How convenient. <clears throat> of course, of course. You have to make use of every chance that you got. I mean, come on, you're a university student. Act like it. You sneaky bastard. Oh, no, okay, very well. Uh, my thesis <clears throat> is about Indonesia's national interests towards ASEAN centrality in the Indo-Pacific region. So basically, I was... Beginning to question about how do we as a country can manage to achieve our national interest in this huge, uh, gigantic mega region whose majority of its territory is maritime filled with superpowers such as United States or great powers like China and India. Well, in the past, we can rely on ASEAN as one of the driving seat, quote unquote, to maintain the regional order. But now it seems that everyone is starting to make their own version. I started to think that will it still be relevant or if it's not, then how are we going to operate on international level? So basically, that's what I'm currently investigating. I am very, very interested to use a little bit mix of neorealism and constructivism to analyze the process of first how this, this region appear in the first place. 
I'm very, very interested to figures like Berry Buzan or Old Weaver. Those are the figures that discuss about regions a lot. But yeah, that's what I'm currently <laughs> investigating on. What about uh, you, Daniel? Because like, you did a lot about navies and military and stuff like that, right? <clears throat> yeah, so as uh, Kim and Choi already know about me, I am a bit of a United States fanboy, sometimes to a fault. But hey, you can't blame me, even though I'm Indonesian by birth, I've been exposed to a lot of Western and mainly American ideas. So I'm very... <laughs> yeah, but me a little bit more than my peers, because somehow I have a large interest in that more than anyone else in my class. Um, yeah, so my uh, thesis is uh, hopefully going to be uh, about the... Um, the image construction or rather the power projection that comes from uh, USC power. Uh, I'm going to be discussing whether or not that lies within uh, true hard power. Is it soft power or is it, as Joseph Nye put it, a smart power, a combination of the two? Because it's a really interesting examination right. of, yeah, of uh, how does it work? Do you create, do you have a strong Navy first and then you project that kind of power through social media uh, Hollywood and those other things, or do the do, do do these depictions in media come first, and then uh, and then you bolster up your navy to fit that image? So it's kind of an interesting dynamic because, let's face it, uh, the you the U.S. Navy does seem to have a lot of uh, appearances in media, and the U.S. Navy is very very particular about how it projects itself, its its public image. So. Uh, yeah, just studying the both the cultural impact and the cultural implications of those two has always been very, very fascinated. Plus, I get to read all about aircraft carriers and sea-launched planes and ballistic missile submarines, which is... It's, it's heaven. With this type of thing, you're not actually planning to join the military or anything? I wish I could. I would love to pilot something like a Poseidon P-8 or an F-18, but I think that career is like way long gone for me now plus i'm not a u.s citizen so that's going to present right a let's lot not of, forget that yeah that's going to be a lot of hassles although if i could maybe i would i don't know Enjoy being <laughs> being a u.s navy pilot has been is pretty cool pretty up there i don't think i'm ever gonna get there though i'm happy enough to you know study the military from uh, a desk or from behind a screen it's not as much of the real thing but i get to analyze its implications on the rest of the world so, uh, Choi, mm -hmm. uh, what's your thesis going to be about? Right, thanks for the chance. So, uh, my thesis will talk about the role of the United States within the peace-building process in the Korean Peninsula. <coughs> so, uh, ever since I was young, uh, I noticed the presence of the United States military troops within my country. And I always questioned, like, uh, how come they're, like, breaching my country's sovereignty? But then, you know, like, as I grew older and I understood the world and the global politics, I realized that, uh, you know, it, it's not always uh, as simple as it seems. You know, there are multiple stakeholders involved and there are always like multiple governments involved in certain issues. And that's also one of the reasons why I want to discover more by using this chance to study about the role of the United States within this particular uh, matter because I want to question whether their presence, their existence in my country is still relevant in the current peace building because in recent years, uh, both governments of North Korea and South Korea have uh, gone to great lengths to make several peace talks happen and the lasting peace within the Korean Peninsula seems like a possible thing at the current rate. So I want to use this chance to see whether the United States has any more relevance in it and see what kind of role that can that they can offer in the coming years. So yeah, I think that's about it for me. Mm, wait a minute. So the two of you make a thesis that heavily related to United States of America. Meanwhile, I only do it for my own country. Wow, I felt cornered. 
Well, you don't have to feel that way because the the only reason why I'm including the United States is because it's a major player in the world of international relations. So yeah, like it's always interesting to include a superpower. Wouldn't you agree, Daniel? And unfortunately, Indonesia is not particularly that important. I don't want to say that. Actually, I want to take that back. But it is very, very difficult to negotiate how, or rather to argue how important Indonesia has been in the past. Obviously, it will be very, very important going into the future, especially as we're about to talk about. There's this new notion of the Indo-Pacific region as both, well, a region of trade, but also as a military theater for great powers such as uh, China, the United States, and India. So, I guess going to the future, Indonesia would be important. But uh, if I had to say, Indonesia has been taking kind of like a a backseat to kind of like hassle out a lot of its uh, domestic issues before stepping into the world stage. So, it has a lot of potential. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that Indonesia should have done better. I don't know if it could. I don't know if it should. But uh, Indonesia at this point only has a lot of potential that's uh, that we're going to find out basically in the next 50 to 100 years. So with that out of the way, um, why don't we go straight into this week's article? It's been selected by Kim. Uh, yeah, so uh, the article is called Assessing ASEAN's New Indo-Pacific Outlook. Kim, why don't you take this one away? Oh, Yeah. Basically, as the as the title suggests, uh, okay. First of all, a little bit of context. Um, throughout the early two thousand and two thousand and ten, suddenly every other major countries has been talking about one common thing: Indo Pacific, Indo Pacific, Indo Pacific. I mean, the United States of America symbolically changed their Pacific Command into Indo Pacific Command. Uh, Japan and India suddenly became best friends in this suddenly what Prime Minister Shinzo Abe called the confluence of two seas. Uh, India have been making a very good relationship with France in logistical and naval support. And it's all came down under the idea of Indo-Pacific. Now, here's the thing. Even China, who did not mention about uh, Indo-Pacific that often, have actually invited many other countries to talk about it because one of their most grand strategy in 21st century is this uh, maritime silk road if i'm not mistaken that spans from uh, the southern china coast up until the south china sea through malacca strait down to the indian ocean the persian gulf eastern africa and then reaches europe and that just speaks on itself that china is really really trying to unite this Pacific and this Indian Ocean under its sphere of influence building up strings of uh, ports military bases uh, giving a huge amount of loan and uh, Enacting relationship with surrounding countries those kind of things really really put concern with many other people So United States of America, of course being the superpower he is he realized that if this happened the two-thirds of the world trade will be under China's control because they would get to say on whose passage can get through this water, whose passage can get not. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, in the past they've done that in South China Sea. They try to make the barriers of entry and everything such that. So United States drove and said that, you know what, I think Pacific Ocean is not enough to challenge the, uh, to address the security in 21st century we need to have a bigger concept which is indo-pacific now here's the thing everyone when everyone is said that ironically the countries that are naturally given the geographical locations literally in the intersection of indian ocean and pacific ocean namely indonesia seems like they are not really that active ironically like what daniel said they seem like taking a backseat position even though the idea of indo-pacific is the earliest countries who espouse that idea of indo-pacific is actually indonesia itself you can see it from the notes of muhammad hatta the first vice president of indonesia 
or even the diplomat uh, Martina Talagawa who actually tried to bring up the idea of Indo-Pacific Cooperative Agreement I think if I'm not mistaken in 2010 but those kind of things never never uh, became somehow institutionalized or became uh, relevant in any sense so not until this in 2019 after the ASEAN uh, meeting uh, in the 34th if I'm not mistaken that they released this and disclosed this outlook on what is ASEAN's version of Indo-Pacific and basically this is what the article is going to do it assessed this uh, five pages document that literally summarize the collection of 10 states 10 member states of ASEAN how do they see Indo-Pacific is it supposed to be f- more into like the United States version free open everyone can access it United States can gain uh, uh, will make sure security or will it follows the idea of let's say China about the interconnectedness of each country's in this massive infrastructure programs we'll never know but actually first comment this document is just five pages but it doesn't meant to be final as the author of this article suggests that uh, the officials in ASEAN really uh, realized that this is not enough that basically they need to revamp it in the future but somehow like uh, you guys know that time when uh, everybody starts submitting their homework and you're not and so you're just getting nervous right. and suddenly like you say, you know what let, let, let's just make it we can revise it uh, in the future uh, because you don't want to feel left out yeah exactly i felt like oh god homework's due tomorrow i should make something so i don't have nothing yeah. when the teacher asks kind of like that just yeah. for the sake of submitting something so that you don't mm-hmm. you're not like the only person you know, having nothing unlike your peers. Yeah. Yes. And basically the author who whose name is Prasant Parameswaran, he noticed uh, he espouses that this report actually emphasized the ideas, the mechanism that's actually already in the status quo. So it's not actually uh, bringing upon a new mechanism or trying to construct a new ideas of what the Indo-Pacific This is basically just a reaffirming and repeating what has been s- said as a common ASEAN thing in the past. For example, using the ASEAN-led mechanism called the East Asia Summit or ASEAN Regional Forum. Which, by the way, uh, my personal opinion, if you are really engaged to Indo-Pacific, you can at least uh, drove not just an outlook, but a symbolic change. That's the very least, like the United States. Uh, United States said that okay we're going to focus on Indo-Pacific and they do change their uh, military command to become Indo-Pacific command. What makes me wonder is that why is it still East Asia Summit? Why is it not let's say let's just change it into Indo-Pacific Summit or since you want to see it that way as a matter of fact in the document itself it is said that this outlook okay this is in the first part point four. This outlook is not aimed at creating new mechanisms or replacing existing ones. Rather, it is an outlook intended to ASEAN's community building process and to strengthen and give new momentum for existing ASEAN-led mechanism. So ASEAN shows its very, very self-interested positions. We do this because we want to be relevant. We're not trying to maintain the world order that we build. We're not trying to challenge the world order that has been built. We want to be relevant in either of it, in whatever scenarios that comes forward. So basically, they want to say that, yeah, sure, uh, we can do it. Or rather, you could say that they're doing this because they have no other choice. If great powers such as China, United States, maybe even Russia, India, Australia, basically, if everyone else in that region has decided... These two uh, theaters, these two regions are now going to become one. The problem is with ASEAN, that is the only way, or rather the fastest way to get from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean is through the Strait of Malacca, through uh, water shared by the ASEAN country states, right? Yeah. Member states. Yeah. yeah. So they don't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not sure if it's just an effort to stay relevant. I think it's sort of like the survival instinct finally kicking in. The rather the oh snap, we're about to be caught between competing great powers and the influences. Yeah, rather if if anything happens in the Indo-Pacific region, it's going to happen through ASEAN waters, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, Which makes me just realize that... that uh, it's like the survival instinct kicks in and is like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, basically that's what... That's basically... Well, good job. You just summarized the entire Indo-Pacific geopolitics with one phrase. Oh shit, this is happening. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> so, like, yeah, basically that's what happened. And then, like, even in the United States of America, uh, they also released a uh, similar outlook, but in my opinion, is far more detailed, far more robust, far more clear on what they're going to do. Uh, in the 1st of June 2019, it's called the Department of Defense Indo-Pacific Strategy, Str- Strategy Report. What makes it different is that United States are really, really vocal on naming who is actually the problem in the region. And in the document, you will see that they start to say, oh, it's China, oh, it's Russia, it's various other actors, which makes me think that I think... In the 21st century, these three will never, never leave your attention. Just like if you were living in the 21st century or 19th century, everything is about the Britain, the French, and the Germans. Now in 21st century, it's all about America, Russia, and China. And here's the interesting thing then. Um, You said that all those two great powers starting to see this Indo-Pacific region as one. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. They're yeah, under they're one, one domain, domain and yeah. it's all who's going to take over it. ASEAN doesn't want that. They don't They don't really want to see Indo-Pacific as one region, which is actually surprised me. They want to see it as the interconnectedness of multiple regions. Yeah, but in that case, then what's the difference? Uh, the difference is you have to understand this thing called the dynamic equilibrium. Because they, unlike the Western school of thought that uh, upholds the classical realism or like whoever the strongest wins, this ASEAN country sees that the last time they have it, everyone or at least many people died, you know, uh, the tragedies of Cold War, everything. So they try to replace this doctrine of this balance of power by trying to make this region to become so fragmented, to become so what do you call diverse so plural with so much actors in it to the point that if you win in one sector it will not dominate the other one and if you win in multiple sectors you will end up benefiting everyone and yourself rather than everything for yourself so it's kind of like trying to expand everything to the point that no one can able to dominate for example at one time, I think in the East Asian summit, there's been a talk on whether or not to invite other countries other than China and United States. And ASEAN was like, oh yeah, you know what? Sure, uh, let's invite India. Let's invite this country, blah, blah, blah. To the point that the talk does not revolve around, hey, this is my stuff. Let's get it done. So all other countries have to consider a uh, multitude of actors, multitude of organization. I think that's why ASEAN does not see this as a contiguous region, but interconnectedness, which actually is being espoused in that document as well. Because they want to be, because if it's just one, then everyone would want a piece of themselves. If it's multiple, everyone would engage everyone at the same time, and they see it as a win-win benefit. But like, um, don't you find it interesting that these countries did not really aspire to that traditional realism of balance of power. I mean, Choi, you study about Southeast Asian studies, right? Like, oh, yeah. why do this uh, Eastern concept of security could probably be differing with the West that much? So, uh, one of the lessons that I've learned from Southeast Asian studies is that most of the Asian countries, such as China, Singapore, and many more countries, uh, they're influenced by the ideology called uh, the Asian values, which is heavily influenced by Confucius. So unlike the Western beliefs, uh, there are different priorities. So the Western uh, philosophies normally talk about the individual freedom. So it's like a bottom-up uh, approach, where it starts from the individual need, and then it slowly expands into a larger layer 
On the other hand, we didn't. So basically, a set of self-serving actors cooperating because Mm -hmm. they have the common interest of benefiting themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which explains like the rise of liberalism, and uh, we can see how like the Western nations, such as the British and the United States, are trying to like uh, promote democracies in other countries. Yeah. Sometimes even through force, forceful means, because they really see the need to promote the individual freedom. On the other hand, when we take a look at the Asian values, uh, it's more of the need of the society because that's the smallest unit uh, which they think mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. the most important. So from society, it becomes a village. From a village, it becomes a province. Uh, and eventually, the largest uh, unit becomes a country. So see, in Asian culture, the Asian values, the individual needs may not seem as important as the overall uh, benefit of the whole group instead of the singular unit. Okay. So, perhaps so perhaps such influences and such ideas uh, can be considered when we're comparing these two different types. And also we've been talking about the lack of initiativeness of ASEAN in the whole context of Indo-Pacific region, right? But as someone who studies ASEAN, I think we should also consider the capabilities of ASEAN. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about India, China, Japan, and mm-hmm. United States mm-hmm. making demands, uh, knowing their, clearly knowing their goals on what they want to gain within this region. But I, I feel like ASEAN does not have that capacity yet to make such demands. In fact, uh, they've always been a very passive group of developing countries rather than other than Singapore. So the amount of influence they command within the international arena is not as great as those of, you know, superpowers. So I feel like we need to understand their situation right now. And yeah, just like what you said, uh, ASEAN is clearly feeling somewhat left out in this rising uh, influence within this new concept of region called Indo-Pacific. So ASEAN needs to consider their current capabilities because you have to understand that most of their member countries are developing countries. They still need to focus on their domestic issues. Like Mm. even the largest and the so-called leader of ASEAN, which is Mm. Indonesia, still has a lot of things. Right, right, right. right. No one wants to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) But my point is that most of the member countries have a lot of domestic factors to consider because mm-hmm. yes. um, if we compare the, the actions of the superpowers and the middle powers uh, of ASEAN, the superpowers already have the domestic capabilities. You know, mm-hmm. They have the education, they have the military, they have the economy to support their decisions and whatever that may result in their actions afterwards. But on the other hand, ASEAN still needs to consider their domestic capabilities I mean, just look at Indonesia. You just talked about the, how bad the traffic was in <laughs> Jakarta. It, it just goes to show how packed and centralized uh, this country is. Yeah. And because of that, like ASEAN really needs, like ASEAN knows its limitations. And I feel like ASEAN is just doing what they can with the current uh, capacities in the current situation. So I don't really blame ASEAN that much, but I understand because they are so ideally and geographically located between the region of Indo-Pacific, yeah. uh, they need to do something. Because whether they like it or not, their, their location is just so coincidentally very significant. And if they were not to do anything, like uh, it would be a big problem for the whole region as well. Like Perhaps ASEAN could act as a mediator to like uh, lobby the superpowers that have different influ- influences. And obviously... Uh, there is bound to be a competition, you know, because like China wants certain things, America wants certain things, and if nothing is done to like to find a middle ground, uh, amidst this uh, competition, then it could lead to a conflict and even another world war, oh which is the world, worst case scenario. Yeah, that's interesting because the way I look at ASEAN is I'm very skeptical about ASEAN's ability to mobilize and realize great changes. Uh, one, because making sweeping changes almost never happens on the world stage, except if there's a crisis involved, for example, world wars or things like nuclear competition in the Cold War. Maybe even uh, a financial crisis. Yeah, but the thing about ASEAN and, like you said, these Asian values, mm-hmm. there is also a particular stress on 
like conservatism and the preservation of the status quo you mean like harmony or like yeah harmony balance like you said dynamic equilibrium aversion to what what, what does dynamic equilibrium even mean right is it's basically I, I look at ASEAN as a way to preserve the status quo of I am Indonesia respect my borders and stay out of my right. business. the non-intervention I policy I am Malaysia stay out of my business and um, even though even if you look into the history of how ASEAN was set up in the first place was basically set up knowing that there was a great power competition in the Cold War there's the Uni-Soviet and the uh, Western Democratic blocs. And then they basically formed uh, ASEAN as a way of saying, like, let us handle our own stuff, stay out of our business. I mean, yes, because they're afraid of great power intervention, but also because I think the end goal of that was so that they would be able to stay the way they are. And I think that's deeply rooted both in the culture and in the history of that time. If you look at all the ASEAN, the... Uh, five initial ASEAN states, they're all ruled by either full-on dictatorships or semi-dictatorships. And I think dictatorships like to create systems and uh, structures that allow them to centralize power and to keep their power from diffusing to other actors. I think that's why there's a very, very high stress on non-interventionism, which is, I think, one of the pillars, or rather one of the guiding principles of ASEAN, which is basically stay the hell out of my way, let me handle my own domestic business. Right. And that's always been very, very detrimental. I mean, not to draw too much of a parallel, because I think that's overgeneralizing, but if you look at the uh, South China Sea dispute that happened two years ago, I mean, it was very, very difficult for them to enact sweeping change, mainly because a lot of the country's stance is sort of still, yes, very self-serving, but they don't see themselves as a unit. You could argue that maybe different countries in the European Union still are self-serving and they prioritize their own domestic needs. But at the same time, they they see enough, they see themselves enough of the same unit to enact certain change, which I don't see in ASEAN right now. Just see the South China Sea dispute, in which case China took a very, very uh, interesting strategy of dividing and conquering and rather than dealing with ASEAN as a region more of breaking them down into their smaller member states through bilateral deals for example with different trade deals with Indonesia dealing with the Philippines uh, on a bilateral basis and Cambodia on a bilateral basis Laos on a bilateral basis and therefore one ASEAN never really feels like a cohesive unit but two, there's no incentive for them to operate as a cohesive unit either because if Laos is already on good terms with China, they don't want to band together with Philippines, which is a, a smaller economy uh, and not particularly a lot of history between them either and jeopardize you know, uh, trade with China and all the help that's coming from China. Not to mention a lot of... Uh, investment and trade that happens in ASEAN also comes from China. And I think that's also one of the challenges that the currently face with the region is this we've never really seen ourselves as together either. It's so easy to uh, pull us apart. And I'm not saying that we are all inherently selfish or stupid or backwards. It's just we've never really seen ourselves very, very well as a unit. And that's honestly my greatest worry when it comes to now we have this great uh, urgency of, yes, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans is now one theater for a lot of the great powers. Mm. And to be honest, if I can very well see great powers such as the United States or China just using that same tactic again of building upon bilateral uh, allies, bilateral treaties, or like partnerships. Yeah, it, it, it's actually like, included in the United States strategy as well. Yeah, uh, and very clearly from uh, China's strategy as well. Yes. Um, if, I were, if I were to say, well, this is great because I just found out that we have a differing opinion. Amazing. 
because I hear I want to say something. I'm actually quite optimistical with ASEAN, and here's why. But before that, I know that the concept of dynamic equilibrium is a bit tricky to understand, and honestly, it took some time for me to understand it well. But if I were to grossly oversimplify it, oh god, here you go. Uh, imagine that you are having a divorce with your wife and like the decision falls between you or your wife i bet that there will be a lot of conflict there will be a lot of um, fighting back and forth back and forth but eventually it will all between either i win or she win now imagine that you are in the same position but there is another people to consider for example let's say there are your uh, families that your in-laws that if you are if this divorce it won't be benefit for them let's say that there will be your children or your friends or your anything so basically you have all this other thing to consider to the point that you really think twice or thrice before making a decision I well, are in a nutshell yeah I mean like yeah eventually yeah eventually you want to take care of yourself but let's say that um, what about this other things or even if like you can start making scenarios like even if let's say i got divorced i have this type of mechanism i have this thing so it actually stops you from not stops but uh forces you to consider twice before reclaiming everything for yourself because there are just so many things at stake and basically that's what dynamic equilibrium is apl when applied to the states is that Indonesia wants to make sure that this region is not homogenous, it's not uh, either bipolar at in, in nature, but like there's many other countries. For example, when they felt that, yes, United States of America started to, to dominate too much, they will invite China. And when they felt that these two started to fight a little bit too noisy, they will invite or they will somehow involve the, and bring another uh, countries to the theater try to make sure that hey 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 you know what uh, there's a lot of things to consider which is actually I just realized it is very fitting with what choice narrative is is that we we uh, prioritize harmony so much is that we want uh, we would want it to be peaceful not get it done as quicker as possible it's quite different uh, conceptions uh, rather than yeah. what you've seen. But, but it seems, seems to me rather like ASEAN would like to preserve this imagined harmony. Of course, of course. As much as possible, even to the point where, you know, you, you, you can't make some omelets without breaking some eggs, which is, again, it's a generalization, but I'm saying is what you're describing to me sounds, sounds a lot more like in order to preserve harmony or the status quo, ASEAN would like to burden its actors with a lot of obligations and responsibilities, maybe legal, maybe transactional, mm -hmm. to the point where it would burden them so much it kind of ties them down. And that would wouldn't that prevent change? I mean, yes, you say we don't like homogeneity in, the, in Southeast Asia. We like to see ourselves as different. But in order to move forward, to have even an Indo-Pacific strategy, we need some sort of agreement, some homogeneity in purpose, even if it's not perhaps homogeneity in culture, race, or any other type. You need some sort of uniting factor, when, or else nothing gets done. It's going to be very difficult if, for example, Malaysia, which uh, controls, which shares uh, the Strait of Malacca with Indonesia, has a very, very different uh, alliances are very, very different way of looking at Indo-Pacific against Indonesia. And let me just remind you, if you look on a map, like the Strait of Malacca is one half of it is Indonesia, the other half is Malaysia, a little bit of a Singapore, but you know, most of it is Malaysia, Indonesia. If all those three countries have very, very different descriptions and very, very different obligations, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to get anywhere. What I'm saying is I I th I think I get what you uh what you mean. It's just that yeah. it's difficult for me to be optimistic but when mm, I see of course we have this habit of burdening ourselves down with a lot of obligations for the sake of this imagined harmony and peace. And I just want to add on uh Daniel's comment. So while I normally like to stay positive about you know, such matters, I have to agree with Daniel in this case mm -hmm. because. 
when we look at the formation of ASEAN, it was meant to be a platform to accommodate the different countries with so much diversity in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the fact that ASEAN is somewhat chosen, or if not uh, due to its geographical location, it is seen as this uh, suitable candidate to lead like what's going on in the Indo-Pacific region. I feel that it's very unlikely and it's very difficult considering the current conditions. Because like what Daniel said, because of the long tradition of accommodating the differences instead of sticking to a singular uh, driving force, I feel that ASEAN lacks that uh, determination mm. and uh, mm. capacity, the capacity due to its regional uh, conditions. You know, because ASEAN always tries to promote its non-intervention policy mm. by respecting the national sovereignties of each member state's uh, condition and domestic situation, which is also the reason why uh, it's very different from the European Union, where there's a central court, where there's a central body, like an executive body that decides what to do with you know, like violators uh, among their member states. Like ASEAN does not do that. It's not the ASEAN way. Mm-hmm. And for an entity with such uh, characteristics to lead a group of so many different actors, so many different uh, superpowers, very different influences. It seems very, you know, difficult. I mean, ASEAN. Well, I'm not gonna say that ASEAN is unable to handle their own member states. It's more of their way of doing things by accommodating all the differences within the region. I see. So, if such an organization, if such uh, a group, were to lead, you know. The, the important decisions made in the Indo-Pacific region, I feel like it's only going to make things more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, basically, uh, if I were to summarize both of you, is that ASEAN is not doing quite well because they cannot took sides. They want everything slow as long as everyone is on the table. Right. Well, here's the thing. like It's like uh, the Asian parent that mm, knows okay. that there's problems in the family and problems with the kids, but would rather just ignore it. As long as the family... Stacey. As long as we can have dinner in peace, right? Yes, everyone. <laughs> as long as everyone right, right. comes for, uh, comes to the table and enjoy. Yeah, the if meal you want to understand like geopolitics on Asian scale, just look at dinner in an Asian house, an Asian home. Hence the Asian value. Yeah. <laughs> usually, uh, fellas. Usually, when I have a conversation and they kind of like criticize Asian the way you do, uh, I usually respond with this. If they talk so much to the point that they are not solving anything, they're actually doing a very great job. Why? Because the moment they start to talk so much, they forgot to kill anyone else in the region. I mean, if you were, I know it's quite bad, not bad, but like it's quite slow and to the point that it's infuriating people on like, come on, achieve something, dang it. But if you were to compare it, it's just like not uh, centuries ago, but like a few decades ago. ASEAN is literally a slaughtering house. I mean, like, I would like to remind you that we were very close on invading Malaysia. Uh, uh, Cambodians are doing a very, very horrific things to those people who wear glasses. I mean, oh my God. Uh, Vietnamese against Cambodians and then like this there's dictatorships everywhere conflicts all over the place let's not forget the rise of communism in in Indonesia exactly and to the point that we're uh, state governments slaughtering their own people and now out of just this uh, decade suddenly everything is just they are talking 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 yes I know that it sounds like we are impeding progress by not taking a firm stance on anything. But in my position, and, and, I, and I believe that in most of ASEAN position, this talking is the progress. And it's not, it doesn't, when you are not achieving something yet, it, is, it does not mean that you don't achieve anything at all. I mean, like, their, uh, your burden of proof would be that why does for something to be called as a success is that it have to happen immediately. For example, uh, usually uh, ASEAN skeptic like to bring out to me the uh, example of European Union. I mean, like, look at them. They're managed to maintain a social cohesiveness. They're man- managed to make a peace and they're managed to share authority to the point that everyone gets enough power without trying to dominate with one another. And my response to that would be, Open your history book, open encyclopedia, open the page, 
in part where it explains about the Middle Ages, open about where everything prior to European, I mean, even European Union is not really something that done. First of all, I think it's a coal and uh, steel community. And then like, I think the Brits and the Germans are having an issues about the reunification and etc. I mean, they have those problems. The difference is that they have those problems hundreds of years ago. Well, we still have this problem, I think, uh, 67, now it's 19, uh, not even 100 years yet. So, yeah, I know it's slow, but I still see progress in it. And talking about, uh, Daniel, that you said that there needs to be some uniting actors in the region, right? Uh, do I misquote you? Yeah. Okay, uh, uniting action, be it, I don't know, even United States or China, but you have to look at the reality and says uh, and forget the notion that everyone gets the piece on the table well here's the thing that is how european history is shaped everyone is trying to say that let's unite the world uh, i'm sorry let's unite this europeans napoleons tried to do it they failed austrians tried to do it they failed nazis tried to do it they failed i think that just shows that despite we do not think like in a sense of modernity of uh, strong sense of unity of finding a common principles and fighting it to the death uh, the hell with everyone my way or the highway i think that uh, it's a matter of opportunity costs or like consequences you want it to be uh, quick I if if I if let's say in parallel universe Asian is like that, then sure. I, actually, I don't mind if they said that. Suddenly, they make a declaration that all right, uh, let's say China. What China doing is unacceptable. We're on the United States side, or maybe in fact that United States is just an old imperialist trying to reclaim its own power. We're on the Chinese side or whatever. Go do it. But it doesn't mean everything will be rainbows and sunshine. There will be consequences. But if you want it to be peaceful you will have to deal, like I said, take a look at the Asian uh, dinners. For example, like the sister wants to be a singer. Uh, the brother wants to be this. The mother and father having a bout. And they never solve anything, but at least they sit on the same thing <laughs> and the same table. Whereas if like, say you are doing it, uh, I don't want to generalize the West too much, but let's say that you want to do it European way and says like World War One and World War Two. Yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And this one guy, oh my god, this Serbian guy, he just have to do it. Like, <laughs> damn. I mean, like yeah. it's just matter of choice. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't mean that I support ASEAN blindly as well. I mean, whatever you guys said, I felt it too. Like, damn. Like, uh, United States said this in 2017 and they've made they re, they really update the hell out of everything to include preparedness uh, everything inside the national security and the best thing you can do is five page like come on man step up your game but yeah. uh, i think that asean is just really need to learn i mean like we just have a state for uh, our youngest state or our oldest state youngest state Timor-Leste, oh, Timor yeah. yeah I mean, like, after the referendum, we have the youngest state in the region is actually Timor-Leste. The oldest one is, I don't know, Vietnam, uh, no? Vietnam or Indonesia. Well, most of the <laughs> horrible members I mean, of the ASEAN. I mean, no. <laughs> we don't even know the history. Uh, Kim, I'll give you this though. Uh, you do bring up a good point. Uh, because of its assertiveness mm. and its dedication on considering every countries needs and uh, different domestic situations mm. ASEAN does become you know a very good neutral gro- ground mm. for all these strong uh, powers with different demands to come together to mm. at least uh, put what they want on the table and negotiate for example like if China and the United States were to have a conference in South Korea South Korea is obviously uh, an ally one of the most important allies of the United States wow. so the Chinese wouldn't you know, like that. The mm-hmm. Chinese would feel that, oh, you know what? Uh, the, the, the accommodations would be more appealing for the United States. ASEAN, on the other hand, it has always been this uh, neutral, um, uh, friendly region 
where all these superpowers with different influences had no issues of coming in to talk about what they wanted. Like mm. this is actually something what our lecturers talked. Uh, it it has always uh, been yes. a good like neutral ground, a neutral uh, region where all these great powers can you know get in and then talk about what they want. So that while we may not get immediate results, at least ASEAN acts as a as a peaceful region where all these mm-hmm. powerful actors can come mm-hmm. together to at least you know see like whether they can compromise and make some consensus somewhere along the way. So yeah, like. Perhaps we're expecting results too quickly, but as long as ASEAN can provide that uh, progress, you know, in the name of neutrality, then perhaps that's one of the things that ASEAN can actually do well in this whole uh, concept of Indo-Pacific region. Mm -hmm. But our question is, can ASEAN do more than that? Can Mm -hmm. ASEAN act more than as a mediator Mm -hmm. in this whole thing? I think think, uh, uh, ASEAN ASEAN is is like taken by surprise because... I think a few decades ago they think that okay, it's uh, the status quo is fine. Like we already have East Asia Summit. What the heck do we need anymore? I think they did not really expect the seriousness of China to in its MSR and the seriousness of United States to say no. Maybe they think that, in my opinion, like maybe they think that oh, you know what, Trump is a little bit isolationist. He's not gonna do military. Uh, expansionism that much Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> 2017 Shangri-La dialogue and the James Mattis was like you know what uh, great power competition is back and it will be in Indo-Pacific and everyone was like oh crap uh, are we gonna do something about yeah. this guys like uh, and basically uh, ASEAN division are like like so diverse I remember that time United States of America uh, tried to send its uh, military I, I don't know maybe Daniel you remember anything and then, like, uh, Singapore said that, yes, we welcome the presence of the United States in the region to maintain balance, balance of power. power. Wait, is this recently or? No, it's, no, a, long it's a long time, time ago. ago. Oh, okay. And then, uh, yet, Indonesia was like that. We cannot accept this uh, presence of foreign military and to make ASEAN as a battling ground. Like, wh- why? And, yeah, yeah but now we have literal US, US literal combat ships. Yes. <laughs> in Surabaya. Uh, and then the <laughs> Lombrum uh, naval base again in Papua New Guinea. Oh. What, what is the name again? It's proposed. Yeah, Lombrum naval base. Uh, yeah. We just hosted the USS Montgomery, I think, in Surabaya, mm-hmm. like uh, August 1st Wait, this month. For real? Yeah. Oh, that was quite recent. We have we have the carrot exercise, C A R A T carrot exercise annual in which U.S. Navy cooperates with oh, Indonesia. Boy. There you have it. Yeah. Anyways, because we're running low on time oh, here, cool. if I can just end on a note here, I'm not try. I'm not saying that I don't believe you. I still think Kim brought up a lot of very very decent points, and we can be optimistic. It's just like uh, Choi said, we do wish ASEAN would do something uh, something more than it's currently doing and I think the, o- the only thing that I can add to that is I hope Azen can do something more but also realizing that there is of course a time limit with this like yes I agree fully with Kim it's like if everyone is talking and bickering with each other uh, no conflict is will no big enough conflict will blow up but you know I would just like to remind you, yes, we've been bickering about something like maybe like South China Sea and our different policies we've been bickering maybe for the last four or five years. And all of that time, China still mans, you know, bases in Fiery Cross Reef and the Spratly Islands. What I'm saying is, yes, maybe we do need to do something more. And the fact is, there are actors out there, not just saying this about China, other actors might also try to use this tactic the United States or India for example they're not waiting for us to like finally find while we're bickering here they're you know slowly moving in you know Chinese like PLA bases are still in uh, South China Sea in what is technically you know Philippine territorial waters and they don't really care in fact they're kind of counting on us to you know be at the dinner table and yelling at each other because that way nothing gets done and if nothing gets done no one can really meet like the challenge that China is currently placing in South China Sea, if you know what I mean. Mm. Anyways, that will sum up our conversation for today. Mm-hmm. 
Again, if you want to see uh, the article, it is on the it's diplomat. it's on the diplomat. Uh, we the author's name is really really difficult, and I'm not gonna say it because I don't want to butcher it. It uh it will be linked on our Facebook and our Twitter. Again, is at Politico de facto on Twitter and at Politico de facto on Facebook as well. Um, now for the final part of our podcast, which are quick takes. Of course, this week is, we're discussing Kim's article at large, but uh, Choi and I, or the other two whose articles are not, you know, the center of the discussion, do get to bring other uh, quick takes on things that they believe are important or things they just want to highlight. So let's start with you, Choi. Right. So uh, of when I considered, you know, like various articles on the internet, um, I decided to take the recent incident when there was a controversy between the United States government and the Huawei company from China. And I purposely totally chose this. Only those two at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I purposely chose this because uh, normally when we talk about foreign affairs, uh, people are used to the government-to-government interactions. But what's interesting about this is that there's an MNC involved. And the fact that this MNC is able to cause you know, such serious security issues really talks about the current state of the international relations. Like, uh, there are a lot more actors involved other than the governments. Uh, the fact that all these other entities have so much leverage, have all these influences. And so, I felt that this article would prove a really good point and would bring different perspectives and opinions on the usual foreign affairs that we are normally used to. So yeah, I think... Yeah, and it's also very, very interesting because the whole Huawei debate also brings into the aspect of cyber security and like mm-hmm. the cyber domain of defense, right? Are we uh, like... When we're considering the national security of a, com- of a country, we now have to consider cyber, which is technically a very, very recent feel, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's just interesting people starting to think about the security implications of letting a country in. Like, we're still so used to the conventional warfares where people, machines are involved. But yeah, where, like, it's tanks, yeah. yeah. It's tanks and planes on a continent somewhere, not my smartphone. <laughs> but people really underestimate the severe damage that the cybersecurity can bring to a nation as a whole. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I think this particular (laughs) i think this particular article can be a good start to like shed a new light to this ignorance that we have so far how the nerds took over the world what about you dan like this week's article is (laughs) kind of inspired on a conversation between you and me came early this week really is uh is about the recent uh russian uh tests (laughs) Again, like Kim said, Russia. You're going to hear that name a lot. Um, again, uh, so uh, about last week or two weeks ago, I think it's uh, last week at this point, uh, there uh, was detected um, not a large spike, but an anomalous spike of radioactive materials in the near the northern Russian coast. And there appears to be... Uh, there are reports that there, so a city in Russia is experiencing abnormal levels of radiation. There's also been reports that five, um, like scientists or engineers, were killed in a Russian missile test program. Are you sure this is not some Netflix series you're talking about? <laughs> oh, the world we live in today. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so just to highlight, especially now that there's a lot of discussion surrounding uh, the you know U.S. exiting the INF treaty. And also, yeah, this also happened. This this is very interesting because the U.S. is finally leaving INF Treaty. And then the U.S. is also talking about buying up Greenland and and like, which is, (laughs) it seems, it seems really funny and absurd. But yes, it's happening. And to be honest, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. I mean, the U.S. is already uh, operating the Thule Air Force Base and Russia is testing nuclear uh, nuclear-powered missiles, not nuclear-tipped, nuclear-powered missiles, in which and then one of them happens to explode. Even China is now looking into like the North Sea and the Arctic and thinking like, 
hey, we want to be on like the the council, the Arctic Council, uh, <laughs> even though they're like fourteen hundred kilometers away, uh, distance wise. And yeah, I think it's just very very interesting watching one this uh, missile test go right, which a lot of people are calling oh. Chernobyl Part Two is not nearly as bad as Chernobyl, but I think the more interesting part is just looking at all these actions that are now surrounding the Arctic Ocean as it begins to melt, and the defense and security implications are starting to become very, very real to Russia, China, and the United States. And we're basically going to be looking at a lot of stuff happening mm-hmm. in the Arctic region it in regards like to fun. Bring your jackets with you, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyways. I think that's it for this, our first episode. We finally finished it. Woo! Thank All right. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, if you want to reach out to us, any questions or concerns or just want to say hi and start a conversation, we are Political De Facto on Twitter and Political De Facto on Facebook as well. Uh, thank you for listening and catch you in a couple of weeks. Adios. Au revoir.